Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillahi Rabbil alemin. Ve sallallahu ve sellem ve baraka ala seyyidina Muhammedin ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem. Allahümme alimna ma yenfa'una ve anfa'na bima allamtena ve zidna min fadlika ilman ve ta'liman ve fiqhat fi din ya Rabbil alemin ve ba'd. Elhamdülillah this is lesson 3 in module 8. And module 8 is concerning al-mu'amalatul maliyya or financial transactions. And so far we've learned some foundational matters that we would consider fardain, personally obligatory knowledge that every Muslim should know. We started talking about the default regarding transactions and how like the things of the world in general the default concerning sales is that they are permissible. The maxim says, al-aslu fil al-ibaha. The default regarding things is permissibility, unless there is something that is prohibiting it. And that applies also to our transactions. Al-aslu fil muamalat al-ibaha illa maja'a muharraman fil nas. The default regarding transactions is also permissibility except those things that are explicitly forbidden within the text of the Qur'an and the Sunnah or what is sufficiently similar to those things that are prohibited in the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So there are certain things prohibited that are not mentioned directly in the Qur'an and the Sunnah but they are similar enough to the things that are forbidden in the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So we talked about that. We talked about the conditions of a valid sale. And I think what we concluded on is the realization that 99.9% of all of our sales here at least, where we go into a store and we see the price and we go to the checkout and pay for it, these sales are perfectly permissible and fine. There's no condition that is missing in our sales here for the most part because most of them are characterized as mu'atat or uh, physical sales without mentioning price specifically but just doing an exchange sale. Um, we also talked about the some general permissible transactions. So if we said that the, the default is permissibility there's no way we can really encompass every possible transaction obviously. But we did go over some of the general permissible transactions that some people wonder about. You know, renting and lending and things like that. We then concluded last week's class with a non-exhaustive list of general prohibited transactions. So we talked about a lot of things. And those are aspects of prohibited transactions that can be reduced into four main ones. Remember we said, I think it was the first class, that when you think about transactions that are haram, you find that almost all of them go back to one of four. What are those four? Who remembers? Anyone? It's in the next slide, so if you don't know it, we'll go to the next slide. We said that pretty much all transactions that are prohibited, haram, can be reduced to one of these four types. Anyone want to guess one? 
ربا غرر حرام things that are حرام to make use of or حرام to sell or something that's halal in essence but it's sold for a haram purpose like selling grapes to a winemaker right so we said that I mean fraud is its own thing right but generally uh, riba interest usury gharar which is the unknown selling or purchasing prohibited products or selling halal items to one who will use them for haram. These are the main aspects of haram transactions. So for module 8, we're in lesson 3. I reckon we have one or two more before we finish out this entire module. And today we were going to look at one and two of these prohibited transactions. But instead we're going to look at just number one. And before we look at riba, I want to give a couple of disclaimers here. This is what I feel to be the bare bones, essential fardain knowledge one should have about riba, its prohibition, and its basic forms. So this is a real basic overview. It doesn't go into detail about all of the types and the ex the exceptions and caveats, we're just looking at it in a general sense. And when we're applying it to uh, lots of contemporary issues people face, we have a question of fiqh and a question of fact. So that's a separate topic. So this should just be an overview for everyone that they should know uh, as a bare minimum. So we're talking about the riba. And riba is translated often as interest or usury. Uh, and some people, they try to make a distinction between usury and interest, uh, arguing that uh, interest is permissible, but what's haram is usury. As if the prohibition of riba is only when it's very overtly exploitive. Some people make that distinction, but that is an invalid distinction. It is invalid for reasons that we'll see. So riba in the Arabic language is uh, linguistically, it means increase or increment. So anything that grows incrementally or increases incrementally, you would say riba, yarbu, right? That's the linguistic meaning. And we get the idea of something growing gradually if it's an interest-bearing account. It grows gradually. But the legal definition of riba according to the fuqaha is an increase in one good for another in an exchange without compensation for the increase. Now obviously as we've seen time and time again definitions can seem like mouthfuls because definitions try to be they try to be very precise in how they define the term. But think of it like this. Riba legally is basically making money from money without contributing in any way, shape or fashion. Just making money from the money without actually contributing. Making money from money loaned, money borrowed and so on. 
So it is an increase in one good for another in an exchange without a compensation for the increase. Now we'll see the examples of this as we go through the different types of riba. Now before we talk about the types of riba that are mentioned uh, both in the Quran and in the Sunnah, we want to talk a little bit about the history of riba as it has been revealed in the Quran. When we look into the Quran, we see that riba is mentioned in four different places. And what we see in the Quran is a gradual process before the prohibition. Very similar to alcohol. Alcohol was not initially forbidden in the early days of Islam. As the people embraced Islam and as they grew in their iman and their faith, their faith strengthened, there came a gradual prohibition, discouragement, and then the command or the prohibition of going to the prayer while in a state of drunkenness, and finally the prohibition of alcohol altogether. We see something very similar with riba. The first mention of riba in the Quran is in Surah Rum, and this is a Meccan chapter. Allah Ta'ala says, وَمَا آتَيْتُمْ مِنْ رِبًا لِيَرْبُوَ فِي أَمْوَادِ النَّاسِ فَلَا يَرْبُوَ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ That which you give in usury, that it might increase through other people's wealth, does not increase with Allah. So is this talking about the usury of loaning money and charging interest on the loan? No, not necessarily. The majority of the ulama say that this is talking about giving gifts. And they say that it means that when you give a gift to someone with the intention of getting something greater at a later time, you know, people do that, right? They give you a gift and I'm going to cash that in later for a favor or something else. They say that it means when you give a gift with an intention of receiving something greater, that person is not going to receive a reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So riba as a prohibited transaction is not mentioned in Mecca. Do you see anything in this verse that says riba is haram? There's nothing that says here explicitly that riba is haram. What it's saying is that it does not increase with Allah. Meaning the person is not receiving a reward from Allah when they give a gift with the intention of getting something else better at a later time. Does that make sense? So it's not prohibited explicitly here at all. And that is in Mecca. The next mention of riba in the Quran comes in Surah An-Nisa. And in this chapter, in this verse, and the series of verses before it, Allah Ta'ala is describing to the community some of the qualities of Bani Israel for which Allah cursed them and chastised them. Allah mentions different qualities that they had for which they earned the curse of Allah. And one of those, Allah Ta'ala says, وَأَخْذِهِمُ الرِّبَا وَقَادْنُهُ عَنْهُ And for their taking usury, though they had been forbidden it. So Bani Israel were forbidden from consuming usury. Uh, maybe a few of you are familiar with this story. If you are a convert and you grew up in the Christian tradition, you're pro or maybe even just you studied, you might have heard of the story of Jesus and the money changers. Any of you ever heard that story? 
Jesus and the money changers. So there's a story in the Bible about how Prophet Isa alayhi salam entered the temple and he saw the money changers of Bani Israel changing money. What's going on there? Basically, the Yahud were visiting the temple for ibadah and there as they're going for worship, they want to spend their money in charity. The problem is the, the money that they had was uh, there were silver coins and the silver coins were stamped by the Romans. So it had the Roman emblems, the Roman emperor, and they didn't want to give charity or bring that money into the temple because it was money uh, stamped by this pagan ruler. So what they would do is exchange that silver for silver of a lower quality without any markings on it. So some of these rabbis and figures in the temple were changing money with the visitors, right? So that's money for money. It's silver for silver of a lower quality. And Prophet Isa in the biblical story, he literally overturns the tables. He flips the tables upside down and drives them out. He drives out the money changers because why? They were literally engaging in the riba transactions in a sacred space. You know, imagine someone doing the most forbidden form of financial transactions in the middle of the musalla in the masjid, right? Imagine you see that. Prophet Isa he changed that evil with his hand. So this is something known. It was prohibited to Bani Israel and they still tried to circumvent that prohibition through various stratagems. And they were for, for, forbidden from this, as Allah Ta'ala says in this verse. So you, you look in the chronology of these ayat, this verse in Surah An-Nisa was revealed in Medina, in the first year of the Hijrah. And in that first year, who is the Prophet ﷺ interacting with? What community is he interacting with besides the Aws and the Khazraj? He's interacting with the Jewish tribes. So Allah Ta'ala revealed these verses telling him and us that he prohibited them from it. But do you see in this verse any explicit prohibition for us as Muslims to engage in riba? There's no such prohibition here. So Allah Ta'ala doesn't say in this verse that we as an ummah are prohibited from riba. Not yet. But you can see this preparation that is coming just as the Muslims were prepared for the prohibition of alcohol in gradual steps. So the first verse is Meccan. It's a Mecki verse. It doesn't have anything to do with riba as such, but the word is used for gift exchange. This one mentions riba in financial transactions, but it's particular to what was forbidden to Bani Israel. We come to the next verse in the Quran revealed about riba, and that is in the third chapter of the Quran, Surah Al-Imran. And in this chapter, Allah Ta'ala reveals to the believers, addressing the mu'minun, Ya amanu, la riba tuflihun. O you who believe, do not consume interest, multiplying it many times over. And be mindful of Allah, so you may prosper. 
So this was, according to the Mufassirun, revealed shortly before the Battle of Uhud. So that's three years after the Hijrah. So we get the verse in Mecca, in Surah Rum. We get the verse in Surah An-Nisa, one year after the Hijrah. And three years after the Hijrah, we finally get a verse that makes riba haram for the Ummah of the Prophet And this is in the third year after the Hijrah, and Allah addresses us with this prohibition. Now, the final mention of riba in the Qur'an is in a set of verses toward the end of Surah Al-Baqarah. And these verses were revealed right toward the end of the Prophet's life shortly before his passing. So we have the verse prohibiting it in year three, and then years later, shortly before his passing, we have another set of verses speaking about riba. So this is shortly before his passing, the Prophet is establishing the economic order and clarifying via the wahi the permissible and the impermissible transactions and it is in those verses in Surah Al-Baqarah that we find the severest rebuke for the act of engaging in riba transactions and these are perhaps the most frightening verses in the entire Quran as it concerns transactions and these are uh, in Surah Al-Baqarah you see these sets of verses here. Allah Ta'ala describes those who engage in the riba. He warns the believers from engaging in the riba. الَّذِينَ يَأْكُلُونَ الرِّبَا لَا يَقُومُونَ إِلَّا كَمَا يَقُومُ الَّذِي يَتَخَبَّطَبُ الشَّيْطَانُ مِنَ الْمَسِ ذَلِكَ بِأَنَّهُمْ قَالُوا إِنَّمَا الْبَيْعُ مِثْرُ الرِّبَا وَأَحَلَّ اللَّهُ الْبَيْعَ وَحَرَّمَ الرِّبَا فَمَنْ جَاءَهُ مَوْعِظَةٌ مِنْ رَبِّهِ وَمَنْ عَادَ فَأُولَٰئِكَ أَصْحَابُ النَّارِ هُمْ فِيهَا خَالِدُونَ Then he says, يَمْحَقُ اللَّهُ الرِّبَى وَيُرْبِ الصَّدَقَاتِ وَاللَّهُ لَا يُحِبُّ كُلَّا كَفَّارٍ أَثِيمٍ And then he addresses the believers again. يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا اتَّقُوا اللَّهَ وَذَرُوا مَا بَقِيَ مِنَ الرِّبَى إِن كُنْتُمْ مُؤْمِنِينَ فَإِن لَمْ تَفْعَلُوا وَإِن تُبْتُمْ فَلَكُمْ رُؤُوسُ أَمْوَالِكُمْ لَا تَظْلِمُونَ وَلَا تُظْلَمُونَ صَدَقُ اللَّهُ الْعَظِيمُ So here's the whole set of verses. And this is very important that we read these and understand them. Allah Ta'ala says, and this is the meaning of those verses, those who consume usury, riba, will not stand except as stands one whom the shaytan by his touch has driven to madness. And this is speaking about an afterworldly punishment. That is because they say, that trade is like riba. They're reasoning here that regular buying and selling is no different from riba because you get a product and you sell it, you get money up front Whereas you loan money to this person, you get money at the end. So whether the money is in the beginning or at the end, you're getting money. So it's, they're both transactions, therefore they're no different from each other. They're using this faulty qiyas. But Allah Ta'ala says, He has permitted trade and forbidden riba. 
So then he says, those who after receiving direction from their Lord desist, those who after hearing this and understanding it, desist from riba transactions will be pardoned for their past. So whatever transactions they did in the past that were ribawi, those things are forbidden. And their cases for Allah to judge. But those who repeat the offense are companions of the fire, they will abide therein. After this, uh, Allah mentions shortly after uh, that He will deprive usury of all blessing and He will give increase for deeds of charity. This is important to understand because we see that when the riba is used as a, a, a means of making money, we see that societies that are based on riba, uh, they do flourish economically more than those who don't, uh, at least on the surface. And one would wonder if it is uh, described as not flourishing, Allah says He will deprive it of blessing and will give increase for deeds of charity, how do we make sense of the economic system around us? Uh, and there's a lot of answers for that. We could say that the marker of success is not just the here and the now, but it's the big picture. The big picture between now and the hereafter, as well as the big picture economically in a single civilization, meaning one civilization can thrive for a certain number of generations, even with riba, but that use of riba in the society creates economic conditions and social conditions that have second and third order effects that may only manifest generations from now leading to its utter doom. So we can't have a myopic vision of understanding what success is here, right? The person who's engaged in riba and making a lot of money may think, I'm very successful. And maybe they are by a certain standard. But by the standard of Allah Ta'ala, that person is going to be suffering failure. So Allah says He'll deprive usury of blessing. He'll give increase for deeds of charity. Those are the things that endure. For he loves not creatures who are ungrateful and wicked. And then Allah Ta'ala addresses the believers. O you who believe, fear Allah and give up what remains of your riba. There's a little typo here. In kuntum mu'minin, if you are indeed believers, if you do not give up riba, Allah Ta'ala says, min Allahi wa rasuli. Then take notice of a war from Allah and His Messenger. But if you turn back, you shall have your capital without increase or diminution, decrease. So this is the only verse in the Qur'an where Allah Ta'ala mentions an action and says that the one who does it should take a notice of war from Allah and His Messenger wasallam. This is a very powerful verse. It's a very scary verse because if a person goes to war with Allah are they going to win? Are they going to war with Rasulullah? Are they going to win? They're not going to win. They're losers before it even starts. So this is very severe and it behooves every single Muslim to know what riba is and how it manifests and its prohibition and avoiding it. Now, that's the mention of it in the Quran. What about the Sunnah? The Prophet mentions riba in various contexts. Some of the hadith, he's talking about riba prohibiting it. 
in other hadith, he's describing different forms and giving details. But we have a number of hadith where he speaks about interest. In one famous hadith in Bukhari that we have here, the Prophet ﷺ says that every usury from the usury of Jahiliyyah has been abolished. And the first usury that I abolish is the usury of Al-Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib. So this was said towards the, towards the end of his life uh, during the, fail, the farewell pilgrimage. In one of the farewell sermons, the Prophet ﷺ mentioned an official end to all the riba transactions that were going on prior to the conquest of Mecca. Think about it. This was a norm in Jahili Meccan society. There were many people who had these ribawi contracts going on. So when Mecca was conquered and opened and the people entered into Islam in droves, the Prophet ﷺ made an announcement to everyone that all of those previous transactions, all of those ribawi deals and contracts that were there before are now null and void. They are canceled out by prophetic fiat. They're done. And that is what the, the ulama call riba and jahiliya. It's a particular type. And Imam al-Razi describes in this quote I put here, he describes the form of riba that was common in that time that was abolished by the Prophet ﷺ. Imam Fakhruddin al-Razi rahimahullah, he says that he's describing this riba and jahiliya. As for the usury of credit, it's a matter that was well known and customary in Jahiliyyah. They would give money on the basis that every month they would take a specific amount while the principle remained unchanged. When the specified time had passed, they would reclaim the principle from the borrower. If he was unable to pay it, extra time would be granted and there would be more monthly payments. What does this look like? This would be a person saying, I'll use an, a, a generic sum. A person loans you $1,000 and you have a year to pay it back. You have 12 months. So at the end of the 12 months, you're going to pay him back the $1,000. So the riba isn't in you paying back that final sum. The riba is that in return for getting that loan, every single month you're going to pay him a certain amount, say, say $25. So every $25, every month you're going to pay $25 to that person in return for receiving that loan. And at the end of the year, you're going to give him back the $1,000. So, and if you can't do it, then he extends the time and the payments keep going too on a monthly basis. So think of it like renting money or leasing money. And at the end of the lease period, you're going to bring the money back. You're not getting the money that you gave on a monthly basis back. That's his to keep too. Does that make sense? So that was riba and jahiliya, a certain type of riba transaction. So it's a loan. It's not that the person is, it's just a roundabout way of paying riba, but it's on a monthly basis, and in they pay the full term. And we'll, we'll look at these examples later. So this is one mentioned in the sunnah. Um, there are other types that I didn't put in the slides that I thought I did. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't, I don't know. So in another hadith, the Prophet ﷺ, he says to the Sahaba, اجتنبوا السبع المبقات uh, Abstain from the seven destructive sins. 
So in the hierarchy of sins, we have major sins and minor sins, all right? Those major sins, there's about 70 of them according to Ibn Abbas, and we mentioned that today in the khutbah. Among those 70 major sins, there are seven which, and they're all destructive, but these seven are especially destructive. And the Prophet ﷺ said, stay away from these seven destructive sins. And he mentions associating partners with Allah, he mentions sorcery, and among them is aklul riba, consuming interest. That is one of the major sins, or the most major of the major sins. In another hadith, the Prophet ﷺ says, that Allah Ta'ala curses the one who consumes riba, the one who agrees to pay the riba, and the one who witnesses the riba contract. This is a very important hadith to take note of. Because some people in the modern world have tried to argue that the only riba that is prohibited is the riba that you consume from others when you loan them money. And they say that if you are not consuming riba by taking money from others, but you are paying riba to someone else, you are the one paying the riba, not the one consuming it. They say that that is not prohibited. But this hadith is very clear that not only is the consumer of riba threatened with the curse of Allah, but also the one who pays the riba, and also the one who witnesses that contract. So this is very important to recognize. It's not just about exploitation, it's also, and it's not just about that person taking benefit, it's also being party to it and paying it to others. And it's also contributing to it by witnessing those contracts and facilitating them among others. So these are some of the hadith regarding riba. Now we get to the types of riba, and this is where it gets very complicated. Uh, because in the basic books of fiqh, uh, in the, or the intermediate books of fiqh, when they talk about the riba, they mention the different types. And of these different types, they mention a lot, lots of details. And the qiyas of these details apply to other monetary items, other commodities, other uh, mediums of exchange. It can get very, very complex. So what I want to do is just go through the basic types, give a kind of cursory look at them, and then focus on number three in particular, because that's the most prevalent one uh, that we deal with, that we see in the world around us. So of these, number three is the one to really focus on. The, the, the first two we just cover because they are uh, mentioned, and there's some relevancy in one of them at least. Now, these terms are all in Arabic. Riba and nasi'a, riba al-fadl, riba al-diyun, and the two types, riba al-qard and riba al-jahiliya. So the word riba is in all of them. Interest, whether it's of delay in nature, or surplus exchange, or the riba of debts, and the debts would be loans or default. Let's look at these one by one. So riba and nasi'a is what we call the riba of delay. So the addition, to read the technical language, the addition of a surplus 
or an extra amount to an originally transacted sum for the party awaiting delivery of what he or she has transacted for. So basically, any commodity that gains its increase simply because of time passing is riba and nasi'ah. So this is the basic definition, but if you're like me, you need examples for that to make sense. The riba and nasi'ah is basically an exchange between two parties where there is a delay involved. You're handing over something and they're going to exchange something, but it's not hand to hand on the spot. There's a delay and in that delay, they're taking benefit from not only the money they have still, but now what you've given them. And that thing that they've taken from you, it does increase in value over time. So that delay is a problem here. So let's look at a couple of examples. So let's suppose Zaid, he gives 100 grams of gold to Khalid today. And Khalid agrees to give him 100 grams of similar gold tomorrow. All right? This is a form of riba because Khalid is deriving extra benefit from the gold he's taken from Zaid. Because the gold is not transacted hand to hand, he gives him his and he gives him his, where it's done on the spot and they're of uh, equal uh, value. It could be anything like this where the person is deriving benefit. Uh, and it's a time base because of a delay. Another example, one that probably makes more sense, is think about uh, money exchange. Say Zaid goes to the bank to exchange 1,000 US dollars for Canadian dollars. It'll probably be more Canadian dollars. So, you know, the values fluctuate. So he goes to the bank to exchange the $1,000 U.S. for Canadian dollars. Imagine the bank uh, decides that they're going to take his $1,000, they're going to hold it, and give him the Canadian dollar equivalent the next day or two days later. That would be impermissible because they have the Canadian dollars, and then now they have the U.S. dollars they put into their bank, they're making use of, they're benefiting from something that has a value over time and they're not doing the exchange hand-to-hand, بالقبض. there has to be this hand-to-hand exchange for that to work. So in Islamic law, if you're going to change money like this, it would need to be hand-to-hand, meaning on the spot. So the bank can't say, come take your money tomorrow. You have to have what the fuqaha call real possession, قبض حقيقي. So I bring the money, I exchange the thousand US dollars, they give me the Canadian equivalent on the spot. That is hand in hand, hand to hand exchange. I have real possession of that. So there's not a, a delay where they have my money and they're benefiting from it before exchanging what they're supposed to give me. So that's if you're getting it directly in your hand. But if they're putting it in your bank account, it's not in your hand literally, but it's essentially in your hand so because you have access to it so that would be called qabd hukmi you, you virtually have it even though it's in the account now what's the chance of this actually happening is very rare because most of us don't deal with these kinds of transactions but that's essentially what riba and nasi'ah is it's this exchange 
where the person is transacting something, the other person holds it, it's not a hand-to-hand transaction, they're benefiting from it over that period of time when it's in their possession before they exchange what's supposed to go to you. So, you know, I wouldn't worry too much about this example because it's not really common uh, for, for us in this form, but this is the riba al-nasi'ah. Riba al-fadl is also something that's not really common for us. We don't really have to worry about it, but it is something a person needs to know if they are selling agricultural products or dealing in minerals and the like. Riba al-fadl is surplus riba. So basically it's an unequal exchange of commodities like for like. So let's say uh, Maqsad has 10 pounds of really old dry dates. They're not that good. They're dry. They're 10 pounds. And I come to you and say, hey Maqsad, I will exchange for you 5 pounds of ripe dates for your 10 pounds of dry dates. This is like for like because it's the same commodity, dates for dates. One is of a lower quality, so I'm offering 5 pounds of a higher quality in exchange for 10 pounds of a lower quality. So that's a surplus kind of riba transaction. It will be prohibited. So the ulama say that it's the unequal exchange of commodities. And the commodities here refer to currency or staples, staple items. So there's six things. So the, the, the main six things mentioned in the books of fiqh are gold and silver, so gold for gold, silver for silver, or staple products like dates, barley, wheat, and salt. Those are the ones mentioned explicitly in the hadith. Gold and silver, and dates, barley, wheat, and salt. So what if I have 10 pounds of barley and I want to exchange it for 10 pounds of dates? Can I do that exchange with someone? Yes, because they're different. If I want to sell X amount of grams of gold for X amount of grams of silver, is that permissible? Yes, because these are not, they're not the same thing. They have their own value, but if you sell something that has the, it's the same item for an unequal exchange, this would be riba al fadl. The yeah, the measure too. Uh, this is where it gets a little complicated because we're talking about uh, when we talk about Islamic law, a lot of our Islamic law in the the muamalat details, a lot of that is. Uh, a lot of the details are describing what applies in an agricultural society. Right? The bulk of Islamic law, written and developed across the centuries, was written and developed in agricultural societies. Right? So a lot of the discussions about uh, weights and measures and exchange, it deals with that reality. Because that's the human norm. Right? We have these supply chains here in North America. That, that's a historical anomaly, supply chains, where you don't see the farm, you don't see the orchards where the vegetable, the fruits come from, you don't, you don't see even the animals, you just see them all packaged in a grocery store, 
given to you, uh, provided at the grocery store through a supply chain of trucks bringing them in. In a society where everything is localized, things are harvested and prepared locally, and they are exchanged hand-to-hand and weighed and measured and the like. And the exchange is not just going to be dollars, it can be other commodities. So a lot of the, the difficulty we have with the details concerning these transactions is because a lot of them are about agricultural societies that we're not living in. Now, the Prophet ﷺ, when talking about this riba al-fadl, surplus riba, he mentions these six things explicitly. Gold, silver for currency, and for staples, he mentions dates, barley, wheat, and salt. The question is, are these the only items of exchange for which the prohibition of riba applies? Are these the only items to which the prohibition applies? Or would the prohibition of riba, surplus riba, apply to other commodities and items of exchange? Well, we have to look at the reason why these things were forbidden in the first place. Because without getting too much into usul, the principle is that al-hukum yuduru ma'al-ildati wujudan wa'adama. The, the ruling revolves around the effective cause, the reasoning. When that reason is present, the ruling is present. When the reason is not present, the ruling is not present. So the question is, what is the effective cause here? Why are these things considered uh, items for which the unequal exchange is prohibited? Um, Does it apply to other items? And the answer is that for the ulama say that for currency, the illah, the effective cause for gold and silver is that they are a medium of exchange. That is the historical norm for most human societies. The medium of exchange was gold and silver. In the time of the Prophet ﷺ, it was the dinar and the dirham, the gold and the silver coins. So gold and silver in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, and after his time, and before his time, it, they were the medium of exchange. So the ulama say that because they are the medium of exchange, Anything in any time or society that is considered a medium of exchange is going to be considered just like gold. And that is the position of the majority of the ulama. So if we can't trade gold for gold with unequal value or silver for silver in an unequal value, can we do that with paper money? If it's not allowed for gold and silver, would it be allowed for paper money? Not according to the majority. It would not be allowed for paper money. So paper money would be no different than gold and silver in this regard. Why? Because like gold and silver, paper money is a what? Medium of exchange. So anything that's a medium of exchange that works like gold and silver as that medium of exchange for transacting, buying and selling then the rules of riba would apply to it, even if it's seashells. If that was the accepted medium of exchange in a society, and it had a certain intrinsic value deemed by the society for their transactions, then it would apply. Silk currency. 
The same currency. Yeah. If the currency is different, it's, diff it's a different currency. So, I mean, you can, otherwise you couldn't exchange money. And how would you travel to any country? What would you do? Right? Now, food items, because we go back to the previous slide. The Prophet ﷺ forbade riba al-fadl and the staples of dates, barley, wheat, and salt. How many of you have any of these items in bulk in your house? Maybe you have flour. Maybe you have a container of salt. Maybe you have barley. If you're into barley, most people aren't really eating a lot of barley. Maybe you have a little bag of dates or a package of dates. But these things were staple foods in the time of the Prophet ﷺ. So when the Prophet ﷺ forbade like-for-like uh, like exchanges, of unequal exchanges of these commodities, does that mean that riba only applies to these? Or would it apply to other foods? What is the operative cause here? The ulama say that the illa for food items is that they are sta staples, staple items, and that they're suitable for long-term storage. So that would apply to things like rice. That would apply to things like lentils, chickpeas. It would apply to uh, several items. Anything that is a staple food and that's suitable for long-term storage. Um, some of the madhahib say it's not even staple items that are stored. It could be any food for that matter. So some of them say the illa is it's a staple food and that it's stored. And by prohibiting riba in these items, it prevents injustice in trade because those items are needed by people in society. They're needed. That's why we can't hoard them either. Right? They are needed to be circulating in society. And if there's unjust, unequal exchanges of these items, then it leads to a problem in circulation of them among people. Uh, other fuqaha say that the illa for food items is that they're just food. People need food. And others say it's because they're sold by weight or volume and so on. So as I said earlier, this section, this type of riba, riba al-fadl, is not really one we have to worry about in our daily life. Why? Because we go and buy vegetables and staple items and fruits and we use dollars cash or use a card whatever we're not going to the grocery store to buy a bunch of dates bringing our own dry dates to buy fresh dates and try to exchange like for like and of different quality we're not doing that so this is not really an issue for us to worry about in our buying and selling but it's just a an overview again a basic introduction to the types of riba that are out there now, now we come to the, the stuff that we see, the stuff that is in the society, in the world around us. The riba ad-duyun, the riba of debts. So the riba, this riba is a type of debt interest that arises when people lend or borrow money. And it's any increase in borrowing or lending money paid in kind or in money over the loan amount as a lender imposed condition or willingly by the borrower. That's a mouthful, but this is the basic definition of riba at duyun. The idea is so-and-so borrows $1,000 from so-and-so, 
at a certain percentage interest rate and then when they pay it back they're paying more than the principal amount they borrowed so the person who loans the money is benefiting financially from the loan you understand we have really three options here the person loans the money and charges interest that is haram they loan the money as a form of ihsan which is of goodness and that's the default for loans in Islam when you loan money you're helping the person you're not loaning the person money to benefit from that loan right and there's a principle the fuqaha mentioned any benefit that you take from money loaned to another person is haram even if it's not money if you're benefiting in some other way and you look at the the great caution of the imams like Imam Abu Hanifa there's a story about this it mentions that Imam Abu Hanifa who was by the way very wealthy he was very wealthy he loaned his neighbor some money and during the time of the loan period before the person paid him back Imam Abu Hanifa would not walk between their two houses in the shade of his neighbor's house. Think about that. This is Iraq. It's very hot. He would not walk in the shade of his neighbor's house during the loan period. Why? Because in his mind, that is taking benefit from this person to whom he loaned money. And that extra benefit, he, didn't, he worried that this could be similar to riba. Right? That was their, their wara, their taqwa in that regard. So we said three things. You're either loaning the money and you're charging interest. You're benefiting from the loan. That's haram. You're loaning the money as an act of goodness. That is the beautiful loan. Or you go into a, uh, a profit-loss partnership with that person. Mudaraba. Where you both... You, you, you bring money, you give the person money, and you're both now in a partnership. If he profits, you profit. If he loses, you lose too. So those are the only options we have. So either you're doing it from the goodness of your heart or your business partners. As for loaning a person money and getting a benefit from it with, uh, through interest, that is absolutely haram. Now, these, this riba at duyun the, the riba of debts, it's actually two types. The first one is called riba al-qard. So this is the riba of debt that is imposed from the start. And it's dependent on the length of time the borrower takes to repay the loan. So for an example, let's say Ali borrowed $100 from Khalid on 10% interest for one year. So upon maturity, Ali will pay $110. So principal amount was 100, the interest is $10 to Khadid. That's a pretty standard, simplified way of explaining what a riba al-qard is. Basically, the person loans money at a certain rate, and they're benefiting from that person financially by getting that increase. It's haram. The other kind of riba of debt is the riba of jahiliyyah. And we actually mentioned this earlier when we read the hadith about the Prophet ﷺ canceling 
all of the riba transactions that were operative in Mecca before the opening of Mecca. That, those transactions he canceled were known as uh, riba and jahiliya. So this is the riba that happens because of the default of payment. Uh, and, and there's forms of this too. There's different ways they did it. But this is described in the books of fiqh as the default of payment kind of riba. So the riba isn't put in the beginning of the contract. It occurs when the creditor in a deferred exchange contract asks the debtor for additional money on the original debt. In exchange for an increase in debt, the creditor agrees to allow the debtor to postpone the debt payment. So this is one form. So basically, the person is paying extra money to the debt in return for postponing the repayment time. So an example here, Harith owes Marwan $1,000 on January 1st. Then Harith cannot pay Marwan on the agreed upon date. January 1st comes, Marwan doesn't have the money. So Marwan on January 1st, without the money to pay back to Harith, sorry, Harith owes Marwan. Harith cannot pay Marwan on January 1st. So Marwan, who loaned the money, agrees not to collect Harith's debt until February 1st, one month later, in exchange for Harith agreeing to pay him 1200 instead of 1000 So, okay, Maqsad, you owe me $1,000 tomorrow. Tomorrow comes, you don't have it. You say, give me a week. I say, okay, you can have a week, but when that week comes, you give me 1100 instead because of this delay that I'm granting you. This respite, the time that I'm giving you to the extra time, that's going to cost you money. So you come back a week later, you pay $1,100. The original $1,000 plus the 100 that I charged you for that deferment, that postponing. So that's called riba and jahiliya. That's one type. The other type is paying on monthly installments and then paying the final amount at the end. Um, that's what we mentioned from the quote of Imam al-Razi. And this is riba and jahiliya. Now, uh, riba can be snuck into transactions through carefully worded language, uh, changing the meanings of words. Uh, oh, it's not riba, it's uh, this and uh, that, you know. But what, all, what, what is most important is what does it mean, not what word is used. If it is riba, then it's riba, no matter what it is called. And that's what has to be investigated in any contract. So that becomes a question of, of, there's the question of law. Then when looking at contracts that may have riba in them, you have to analyze that contract. It becomes a question of fact. Is there anything riba we inserted in that contract? So a person may know that riba is haram. They may know the different forms of riba historically and the common forms today. But unless they know the language and the terms of certain contracts, they may not be able to determine where it is because it's worded very carefully. It gets snuck in. Not everyone's going to know that. So, um, yes, I, the slide for Imam Razi is here. Another example of the riba of jahiliya we talked about. Now, that leads us to the modern transactions that involve riba, all right? 
and I, I put a note here in the slide, it's kind of a caveat, right? It's not, it's not fardain, individually obligatory, to know all of the nitty-gritty details of all of these transactions. However, as a Muslim, it is required to know the ruling of Allah in, for everything that you do. Right? That's a principle. So if you are involved in a particular transaction, it is followed upon you to know the ruling of that particular transaction in the Sharia and to act accordingly. That means that if you're not involved in this and that transaction, you don't have to know the nitty-gritty details about it and the terms and whether or not there's riba and how, because you're not involved in the transaction. But the moment you're going to get involved in a transaction, you have to verify and make sure there is no riba in it. And it may not always be clear. But in the modern riba transactions, the most prominent forms are in the following. Basic commercial bank interest. I don't know how the banks all how all of the banks work, but most of them to my knowledge when they hold the money, they're adding interest that you're gaining from them holding it for you, right? So there's that little bit that comes into your savings. You didn't ask for it. You have to divest yourself of that. You can't keep it and use it. Uh, Credit card interest for late payment. So people ask, is it halal to have a credit card? And what, what I've learned from my teachers is that if a person gets a credit card, that would be allowed for them provided they know from themselves, in themselves, that they have the funds, they have the funds to pay in the period before it starts to accrue interest. So they use it for building their credit, but they have the money and they pay it back immediately. They never allow it to lapse where they get charged interest and they never let it happen. If they could ensure that, then in theory they could have a credit card. But if they know they don't have the money and they're just getting the credit card and living off of the credit card, and then it lapses and they start to owe interest. Now, that's, that's haram. That's prohibited. You shouldn't willingly go into that kind of uh, deal. Likewise, the issue of home and car loans. Like, it, it's, it's just riba. It, I mean, it is what it is, right? People look for halal alternatives through Islamic financing organizations. I talked a little bit about that and asked the imam. It's not my area uh, of of expertise by by any by any means I am a bit uh, distrusting of many of them based on their history but if someone finds something they trust and they have scholars backing them and there's many scholars and they feel good about the way they're operating then they could use that alternative but basic home and car loans that involve riba they it's riba there's nothing there's nothing you can do about it to make it not Riba. It is simply riba because you are literally paying interest on the cost of that house, the, the home loan, the car loan, and so on. The same goes for student loans. Now we talk about these and people say, well, I need a solution. I need a solution. How do I go to school? How do I buy a home? How do I get a car? And 
it's true, the fuqaha, uh, their job is to give, to communicate the ruling of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to use the vastness of the sharia to give ways out for people so that they are in the halal and not involved in the haram. However, it gets very sticky, very tricky when it comes to finding ways out for dealing with these things. And there's a lot of controversy and there's a lot of uh, varying opinions, uh, contradictory opinions. And one is responsible for fearing Allah as much as they are able. And as I've said before, I'm not a mufti. I don't give fatwa in these matters. I defer to my teachers and the ulama qualified for ifta in these matters. And I would transmit what they say. Those in whom uh, I feel confident, who inspire my confidence, who have a track record, if someone finds a fatwa here or there that allows for them to do these things, that is between them and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if they ask me, I simply convey what I've learned from my teachers. You know, there are people who say that you can engage in the riba in Darul Harb. You heard that before? A few of you have heard this before. They, they use the Hanafi ruling, uh, one of the Hanafi rulings, that uh, riba between Muslims and Darul Harb would be permitted. And I'm not in any position by any means to uh, criticize that ruling in the Hanafi school. Uh, it exists. However, what can be criticized is its application in North America or the West. Can we call these societies Darul Harb? What is Darul Harb? And if we're using the ruling permitting riba in Darul Harb because we say this is Darul Harb, then we should also be taking every other ruling that governs how a Muslim should be in Darul Harb, which includes not living here. So people want to take one ruling according to a particular view in the madhab and apply it to the situation while discarding all of the other rulings that apply to people in, this, in that place. So this, in my view, is picking and choosing. And that's really all I'll say about that. And if you ask particular questions about this and that kind of transaction, if it involves an analysis of a contract, I cannot answer your question here. It would involve consulting ulama who are familiar with those contracts and how they work. This, as I said in the beginning, is just an overview. You know, for you as a Muslim, the fardain is for you to know that riba is haram, and here are the common forms, and you should avoid it. In the particulars that come up in your own life, you have to figure out what is the ruling of Allah on this mas'ala, in, in, in this particular issue. And that is not something that we can cover exhaustively in this class. We can take it on a case-by-case basis. So after this, inshallah, we have the gharar transactions, the transactions that are based on the unknown. And that involves a number of things. After that comes selling things that are haram or selling things that are halal for haram purposes. So we'll probably have two more sessions, maybe one, where we also talk about the issue of working in establishments that sell haram products. A lot of people ask about that. And 
uh, how that works in Sharia. That's when we'll answer it, inshaAllah ta'ala. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallama ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Wa iyyakum. Any questions? I'm not aware of any formal organizations that do that. There may be some. I do know that it exists among certain tribal affiliated people. I know that among in, within the Somali community, this is actually a common practice among the Somali community in places like Ohio and Minnesota, where if you're from this particular tribe among them, you come to that community the members of that tribe, they pitch in, they create a pool of money to help that family buy a house up front, avoiding all riba, and they pay that back over a period of time, and then they also contribute to that pot, and everyone's basically helping each other out as kind of like a cooperative. So they pay it back, uh, and it goes into that pool that's ran by that that tribe or that clan. that seems like a really useful way of doing it, a, a good way of avoiding it. I don't know of any organizations that do that, but it's a qard hasan ultimately. So, most likely that would be with individuals. Yes. Okay, you, you said, but this is about the fatal. Example would be like exchange. You have a one hundred dollar note, and you exchange it for ten ten dollars. Ten ten dollars, but the sum is the same, isn't it? Yeah, the sum is the same. Yeah. In terms of like services, let's say if I enter into a contract with a painter and say paint my house, that transaction, usually the spot transaction doesn't occur there. Many times you just uh, have a contract and you may pay some money up front, you may pay some later or maybe pay later at the end. And they don't start the, the painting the house right away and say, okay, I'll start doing it later. So... There's a delay here. There's a delay, but the paint isn't increasing in value for the longer they hold it. It's it's going to be used on your on your house. What if, I, what if they take some of my money, like a deposit? I mean, deposits are permissible. The question is... Oh, well, non-refundable. I mean, th- those things come up usually, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there are so many variations and... Uh, yeah. Going to a mufti or a sheikh every single time, it's not obviously the key. Yeah, for sure. So there has to be some guidelines, basic, in those situations where you can apply it. Well, one of the the difference between that example and, say, the bank. You go with $1,000 U.S. to exchange for the equivalent value in Canadian dollars. And they say, okay, we'll give you that in three days. Come back in three days, we'll give it to you. They take your dollars. They put that with their money. That's now in circulation that they're using, and they're benefiting from it. And it's not a hand-to-hand transaction. You get it three days later, 
but they've benefited from it in that delay. If you're giving that person a deposit in return for paint that's going on your walls, there doesn't seem to be an equivalency here, right? The paint is, is it's just sitting there. It's not a, a commodity like currency or gold and silver that, that has a value that increases over time. This seems to be the difference, so Allah knows best. So you, you agree to a certain price and a certain time, you give a deposit. Um, and this is somewhat similar to salam transactions insofar as they may need to go, they may need to get the paint and get the supplies. It gets a little iffy, yeah. There's also a scenario where people have said that, okay, you, if you want to go purchase a car, for example, you're not buying, you're mm-hmm. not getting a loan. But uh, if the car dealer says that, uh, if you can come up with a transaction where you have to pay a little bit more up front to cover for that interest, that's allowed versus uh, going on an interest-based yeah. Is there a difference? Because some people say, oh, what's the difference? And we're just paying a stiff trust upfront. Well, the, the difference is that uh, you're just paying a, a higher charge upfront uh, to avoid a contract that is intrinsically haram. Mm-hmm. If it's a fixed price that's a little higher than the norm, but you're doing it to avoid that in this society where it's almost unavoidable. Like on the surface, you give X amount of money that's higher than what other people are paying. Just looking at that transaction, have you engaged in the riba? You haven't. You just paid a higher price to avoid it. That's a kind of sacrifice someone would make to avoid the haram. In an ideal situation, they would need to do that. But if the borrower of the loan would pay the same amount of price at the end. They pay the same amount of price at the end. Right. So what's the difference? But a portion of, but some of that is the principle and other part is interest. It involves the same amount of money, but the sacrifice may be you're doing it up front. So like how many people can just bring a suitcase and buy a car, right? Mm-hmm. Buy a Bugatti, right? Um, with a suitcase. Most people can't do that. So the sacrifice here is that paying it all up front when normally that's pretty difficult for people. They would rather do it on a month to month. So in doing that, they're going to charge you riba. So you can avoid the riba by sacrifice, by paying it all up front. Um, you know, I don't know what people do. You know, People have their ways. You know, and most of the time, people, what they do is they get involved in the contract and they sign it. And then they come and say, can you take a look at this contract? Is it okay? Uh, why did you sign it? This is what I call the Islamic f- uh, fire, aim, ready <laughs> technique. You have ready, aim, fire. This is fire, aim, ready. Right? I do the action and I bear the consequence and then I want to find out, oh, what's the Islamic ruling on this? No, it should be the other way around. What's the hukum? Okay, that's the hukum. Okay, how do I work around that in a halal way? Right? The mufti may be able to tell you that that thing is haram. They may not be able to tell you how to find a halal workaround. 
it's pretty easy to say, oh, there's interest, that's haram. It's not so easy to say, here are halal alternatives and here's how you can work. That's a little more complex because it's one thing to know the basic fiqh, it's another thing to know the modern financial system and all the different ways that these things work. A lot of people aren't aware of that. It's not their world. That's why when it comes to financial matters, you, you want to consult specialists. You don't want to consult, like don't, don't, don't consult me, you know? <laughs> don't consult me about some complex financial thing. All I'm going to do is say, give whatever you have to me and I'll just send it to someone I know who deals with that all the time. It's, it's, you know, everyone should know what they're capable of, right? Wallahu alam. No. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. You know what? It crossed my mind. I, I thought, you know, I should give it like a nice detailed answer on this. And then I said, to, in my head, I said, mm, I don't think anyone's going to ask about it. But here you are. <laughs> so let's defer it for next week if you want. We'll, we'll talk about gharar. We'll throw in some other things too. And if you have anything else, throw it at me now. We'll talk about it. Rewards, rewards things on the, you know, all that stuff. Airlines, hotels, all that stuff, yeah.